Ongoingness is a pod project started by me, Jenny Morris, a fiber artist and writer living in the U.S., and Sophia Pushai, an animation filmmaker and artist living in Europe. The podcast is made with the intention of documenting transparent interviews with artists and creative entrepreneurs around the world. These talks are meant to lend an unfiltered lens into the underbelly of process and work. We're so excited to have you join us. Hello, everyone. We're so excited to have Brandy Sparing. For episode five, Brandy Sparing resides in Philadelphia, where she writes, sews, and paints. Favoring nonfiction and poetry above else, her writing tends to sway between both, carrying a little over each time. Sparing's first book, This I Can Tell You, is available through Perennial Press. Other works can be found in Supernatural, Art and Fiction for the Future, Schuylkill, Valley Journal. I always want to say sure kill about Valley Journal. It's a Philly thing. Forum Magazine, Art Blog, and more. So we're going to jump in and we have a lot of questions for you. I'm super excited to talk about your new book. Yeah, welcome, Brandy. Thank you. It's so great to be here. We'd love to start with your background. So can you tell us a little bit about how you ended in writing and more specifically poetry as a medium? Oh, good question. I guess it starts way back, like in middle school. Um, I always loved writing, but I went to an arts middle school and high school. And we had to pick majors come fifth grade. And I wound up being like a ballet major, which seems really strange to anyone that knows me now because I don't have balance and I'm not like, (laughs) I'm very uncoordinated. And at the time, I really wanted writing, but my school didn't offer it and they wind up offering it my last year. At that point, like I was already taking ballet for like three years. So I was like, let me just finish out the major I've been doing, but I worked closely with the creative writing teacher there to try to build a portfolio to try to get into high school. (laughs) So in high school, I studied creative writing and I was really drawn to nonfiction and poetry. But when I got to Pratt, where I went for college with Jenny, (laughs) there wasn't really any nonfiction courses. There was fiction and a few different, um, there was fiction and poetry for studio classes. And there were definitely, you know, other electives, other different writing classes, but it was really, I felt the decision between poetry and nonfiction. So I gravitated more towards poetry since in high school, I just, I guess in general, I always have flocked more to nonfiction and poetry. Maybe it's because of the teachers I've had with it. I haven't had the best relationships with fiction teachers I've had. And I'm not saying it's always that way. It's just, I've also had amazing fiction teachers too, but I'm saying early on, I really clicked with poetry and nonfiction teacher I had in my high school because they were almost like our mother hens and we could just talk to them about anything. And I think that's where I felt a big freedom in that. I I definitely think they had a big influence on the freedom and everything that I felt that came along with it. I feel like we can attribute so much to our teachers and it's come up in other episodes. Like the way they shape us is pretty incredible in comparison to how much they get paid. It's like the influence they have on us is huge. It's funny because we've had a couple of interviewees that have said the same. And it's always interesting to hear how, as you mentioned, one person can just shape your whole life. Yeah. And I feel like I honestly, I've always known that, but being asked that and articulating it on the spot. Like, I feel like I never really 
realize that to the effect that it, it really was. And, you know, I've, I've tried to reconnect with these teachers. Like we've always been close, like when I was in high school, at least, and I've reconnected with them recently, like just, you know, mostly, hi, how you doing? And, you know, it's amazing throughout these years, I've just always had them in mind. Like I want to make them proud. And that's definitely been a driving force. That's really, that's huge that you can still reach out to them. They must be so proud. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were very sweet about everything and always have cheered me on in that way when I reach out. Yeah. It's so, it's so important to have a support system of like mentors beyond just peers because they do very different things in terms of pushing us. So with that, let's talk about your book. We got to talk about your book. So I'd, I'd love to actually read one of the review quotes on your website that I think explains your book beautifully. So I'm just going to read that for people listening. Riveting and haunting, this I can tell you chronicles an intimate recollection of familial history and a reconstruction of self in the aftermath of homicide. Part elegy, part memoir, part true crime story, this book surges from a house of mystery. Thea Matthews, poet and author of Unearth the Flowers. So your book's incredible. It just came out, what, this year? March 2021. Wow, it's crazy. I like ate it up, as I'm sure a lot of people did. I read it very quickly and just kind of sat with it for a while afterwards and can easily say even in an unbiased way though I like I know your thought process and I know I've been in studio with you and I have that edge where I we have that background together but I mean this book was has become easily in my top few poetry collections of all time I mean I love it that much and everyone should read it So I'm curious what the entire process was like. What prompted you to start it? What prompted you to finish it? Because we know as writers like that and as artists like that is a it's a very different thing to finish something as it is to start it. So I'm curious what you were both very curious what your process was and what your emotions were during the process, too. Like, how did you feel moving through this process, especially a topic that's so personal to you and your memory and your truth and your life? And then how did you gather that dedication to finish it? It's strange because since I started nonfiction classes, like, like I said, in high school, I always felt like I needed to write about my life because honestly, it's the one thing I'm mostly sure about, you know, speaking from experience, it's just easier for me to say, like, to me, this is defiably true. And, you know, with my book, it's a lot about memory. So a lot of it is, look, take it with a grain of salt. This is my memory. But it's also part of it was growing up being told like, oh, that never happened or that didn't happen exactly how you remembered it. So for me, there's always been this driving force of I want to get these things out because of some reason. And at the time, I didn't realize it was because I needed therapy. This project specifically started my senior year of college and we had to write our thesis projects. And for me, it was pretty, it was pretty easy to determine what I would write about because everything leading up to that point was about my father's murder. Spoiler alert to the book. At the time I wanted to go to therapy, would try to go to therapy through school, but I would always, when it got to the point where I was like, I need to go today, it was always at the end of the semester there weren't really any slots and, you know, the therapists or the counselors would say to me, look, we're not really equipped to deal with the type of trauma that you've been through. You need to seek help elsewhere. And I just never did. So instead, I just put that all in my book. And 
you know, it was really traumatizing. Not, I shouldn't say traumatizing. It was very hard at times, triggering at times, um, to write through it because there was the whole process of trying to piece everything together in some sort of timeline. So I had all these memories floating into space and I couldn't really, there were chunks of my life that I don't remember. And so certain things that I would say happened, I would have to look at, okay, back up a little bit, find something in that memory to try to ground it to space or to ground it to some sort of reality. And so I was able to do that a lot, but it was almost like I was investigating my own life, if that makes sense. And, you know, I would have to ask family members, like, what do you remember? Trying to get some sort of truth of it, even though a lot of it is about my perception. I wanted to make sure that I was also being as accurate as I could. And there were ways for me to do that by comparing notes with like my siblings, my cousin and other family members. But to be honest with you, there's a lot of times that they would say one thing and then it would change a few months later because we're all dealing with this memory loss in a way like there's sections of the parts of my life that don't that I don't remember line up with the parts that my siblings don't remember and so part of me wanted to put that together because I was like I want to move past this but also this is all I could focus on to write and at times it made me think like if this hadn't happened if I hadn't had the life I had if I hadn't lost my father especially in the way that I had what would I write about so that was struggling in that sense. But at the time, I just threw myself in it because I had to. I had deadlines for school. I had great editors in it in school, like a lot of critiques that really helped. And But for the most part, I would have to write, go in and rearrange things because the way things came out didn't always make sense. So there were times where I'd write a draft and you know, either a professor or a classmate would say, hey, I don't think this needs to be page one. Maybe it's page 20, you know. And after writing a few drafts, things would go back to almost, I'm trying to think of a way to describe this because it's very strange. Like say, for instance, I wrote, like I said, they wanted a page at the end. Once I did editing, that page eventually made its way to the front because at the time that I was showing it, it didn't make sense. There was a lot of writing through I had to do. So it's almost like I would get too ahead of myself at times. So I was struggling to not only uncover memories, but also deal with the emotions that came up when I wrote about them, finding a way to not sugarcoat things, but also not entirely expose every truth my family had because they would be very upset, but also trying to find the order and trying to remain true to my memories. So a lot of times, I'm sorry, I'm going on a ramble here, but no, we love, we love the rant. Give us the rant. Thanks. Um, A lot of times, like as I was writing, more memories would come to mind. And especially towards the end of editing, I would sit there and think like, did this really happen? Or am I just like filling in the, the spots, you know? And so like my mind became unreliable sometimes and I would know, okay, you have to take a break maybe talk to someone else and see if they they remember anything about this. And sometimes, you know, I had to incorporate those sort of processes in the book in terms of like, you know, I'm not really sure or, you know, this story changed because I think that also says a lot about not only time and perception, but perhaps trauma. And so I finished it. I, I felt like I had finished it my senior year of college but there is, of course, a lot more editing to do. And so I, I would take a year off of it here and there. 
and then go back to it and try to submit it to a lot of places. And then finally, I submitted it to Perennial Press, partially because I was already in their first anthology. So I knew they knew the process. And I had an offer from Vanity Press, which I didn't know what that was at the time. So I was like, hey, can you look at this contract? Let me know how it is. And Maddie from Perennial Press, who I actually have known since high school, have been collaborating on projects with for probably over 10 years now, here and there. And she was like, hey, do not give these people $4,000. Not that I had it to give, but she was like, submit it to our press. I'll have our team look over it. So I'm not biased. And so that's kind of how it, it came to be. And of course, with the editing team and Perennial Press and a lot of proofreaders and everything, like it really brought it to the next level, really helped me fix typos, obviously, but like things even grander than that, that, you know, I sh- my eyes should have picked up in the past six years, but hadn't. So it was really great to be able to get so many different perspectives on it. And honestly, like all the people that have edited it throughout the years have really been would have helped propel it further and to have so many people invested to help me in that way. Definitely couldn't do it without them. I don't think it would be the same book without the editors that I've had. Yeah, I don't think any of us could work alone. It definitely takes a village. It does. I want to go back a little bit to some of the stuff that you mentioned. First off, you sort of already answered one of my questions, which was when I've been doing some of your reading, I feel like there is a very nostalgic tone to your work in a very dreamy way, almost like you don't know exactly how a memory is told. So I feel like you right now just touched based on that. But it was one thing I thought of, which is the sense of us thinking that our memories are always true. I've had this notion or this thought that our memories get influenced by the state of mind we're at when we go back to them. And each time we go back to them, we sort of color it differently. So the fact that you, when you mentioned that you always had to almost fact check yourself with other ones. And then sometimes you realize that they also might have like colored it in some other way because they've gone back and forth. And has this helped you almost let go of needing to know the objective truth? Or did you ever just search for that? Or was this just what you mentioned, um, healing process for you? Yeah, so I... I definitely feel like when it started, I needed to uncover some truths. But as I went along, I knew that those truths wouldn't really change anything, especially when I look at, you know, I talk a lot about my parents and I feel like throughout the book, I'm validating their actions. And in a way that started as a way to, like I said before, like sugarcoat things, because in When I first started sharing this with people, it was a group of five writers, or I'm sorry, a group of four writers, including my professor. And I trusted them all incredibly. So it was an open book. But once I thought about other people hearing it, I really wanted to tone back. So it made me, instead of just skirting over the details or like lying about things, I wanted to really say like, okay, if I'm dissecting this, I have to try to dissect this from other people's perspectives as well. And, you know, as much as I'm, as much as I don't think I had an easy childhood, I know a lot of people have had a lot worse. I still had amazing moments and I honestly wouldn't give it up for anything, obviously, because it's who I am. But I look at like the lives that my parents had, and I don't know if this is going too off tangent, but 
I look at the lives my parents had and I'm like, I, I'm not sure I could have done much better in their positions, especially dealing with the things that they've had to deal with in life. But that's a very nice and humble way of looking at it instead of just um, being resentful towards your parents. Yeah. And it actually like really helped my relationship with my mother. A lot of people have known me through life have known like me and my mom have been rocky and it's mostly because we're, we're very similar. We're both, we're born a day apart. I mean, obviously years apart, but we're both Aries and we're both like stubborn and have anxiety, which can often come off in other ways as well that don't seem the most pleasant at times. So we would often bump heads. And I think a lot of problems that I don't want to say everyone has, but in my family, communication. And so once I wrote this book and started editing it and really sitting with it before going back to it. I really felt like, you know, at times I was really bitter about my childhood and the things that I went through and oftentimes thought that like, like I had a chip on my shoulder. I know, especially at Pratt, because I was like, I'm surrounded by all these rich kids who seemingly have perfect lives. And of course that wasn't the case. Everyone has things that they go through. And it took me years to, to kind of grow up in a sense. And I really think that this book helped me because, you know, I was saying, if I'm going to write this in print, I have to stand by it. And certain things I knew if I wrote in print, I would regret over time. And that like, it was the wrong emotion fueled it. So like the first draft, it made sense that it was angry. It was bitter. It was my first time getting all those things out for the most part. So, you know, over time I was able to get over it in a sense. And I mean, not completely, but it's definitely helped me move on in a way of at least not carrying weights of those sort of ill feelings. And there's not really much to, when I look back and I'm like, there's not really much to be, to feel that way about. Like it's, I don't know, I'm sure in our heads, we always build it up or maybe build it down on paper. It's always hard to try to. How, how do you feel now after you've um, published the book? Like all of those emotions you've gone through for a year, like a few years now. It's it's interesting because I'm I feel like a weight has been lifted. I, you know, I've I always talk to my partner about this and he's you know, when he started when we first started dating, um, I was starting my book and he was writing like an album because he's a musician. And I always tell him, like, imagine if you still haven't been able to put that one album out like I in a sense felt pregnant for about six years trying to get this book out. So. During the time of trying to get it out, even though I was going back and editing it, I would think, you know, I wish I had time to work on other projects. And now that that's out of the way, I'm like, I don't know what else to write about. Like, I don't want to go back to those old projects I haven't finished because they're at least not right now. I just want to get back into like actually writing something new. But, you know, along with being stuck in the house all day, there are not all day, but now that I'm working again. But I mean, with COVID and everything, like, I, I found like I don't really have that much to pull from, especially seeing less people. And so it's definitely been hard in that aspect. And I have been going back and like writing more, but more in terms of my childhood. And I know that sounds silly because my whole book is seems to be about that. But there's a lot of like little stories that I would like to put out there. So I've been going back and writing those. But I'm also in the sense of like, I wish I could get back to writing something different. Maybe with time, I will. I don't want to be just like the girl that writes about her family all the time, but there's a lot of stories. It makes a lot of sense, though, that 
like in the way that you're talking about the present, not being that, not having that much to pull from in present, then you go to your past. And it's hard to write. If you're interested in nonfiction, poetry more than fiction, like you're probably not going to write as much from the perspective of your free, of your future. So it makes sense to go past. And I think it's really fascinating how you talk about how in studio you felt really safe, but then when you thought about it, actually moving out into the real world, which was something I was going to ask you and you already addressed, like, how did your, how was your family's reaction to this? Like, there's always this idea of you write this thing that's nonfiction and then the family gets hurt or like there's some sort of rift and there's all this drama with the writer being cast in Hollywood as like the person who destroys their family or like out, you know, like outbirths their secrets or something. And there must be some truth to that. And I'm, I'm so, I'm so interested in hearing you talk about that, you know, how your family reacted through this thing. Did they push back? Were they upset? Were they proud? Were they all of it? I mean, there must've been so much difficulty there in not only like learning to trust yourself as you talk about, but also like setting those boundaries and saying, this is our project, but I'm right. Yeah. I was just about to say that because it feels like you've involved them already throughout the years. So I can imagine it wasn't a shock, but in some ways it might've been because they got the, you know, finished piece. Sorry for cutting you off, Jenny. (laughs) No, no, no. You just added on to my comment. Yeah, so many good questions. When I first started, I feel like there was this anger inside me. And I almost like it was the only way I could avenge my dad. And not saying, you know, about his murder, but just I wanted to do something for him. I mean, it was obviously a very self-involved process. It was obviously for me as well. It was my therapy, but... I wanted to have my dad's story out there because no one really talks openly about his death. And there's a lot of things that I'll never say in public for the safety of everyone involved. But there's there's a story that is the, the story we all know. And then there's this story that is the truth. And I've found that out through research and kind of doing my own investigative work. And so part of me was like, all right, let me focus on the good parts of my dad. Like I wanted to talk about his death and I wanted to be very honest about what I believed about what happened. But I knew that I couldn't because, you know, when you start writing, you're always told like, or at least I was by my poetry and nonfiction teacher that like you need to be honest and it's your story. But, you know, I was very conscious of the fact that it wasn't just my story, you know, so I... I just truly felt like at the time I had to, it was all about my dad. And then as I was writing, I was like, you know, I, I'll, I would say things like my dad, my fa- my family. And I was like, no, it's our, especially if I'm going to include them in it. And my family has been very supportive, but also very hesitant. And I think it's, there's been a lot of blind faith, but also, you know, like I'm pretty sure my mom hasn't read it and I'm not sure if my sister has, but they've been very open about like, you know, it might not be a safe time for them to read it, you know, dealing with their own traumas and things happening in their own lives that they have to focus on. So I don't take any offense to it. And I don't think it's a negative thing. And I think it's, they might not be fond of me bringing that up, but I think it's something that's a very human thing. And as much as they've respected me and not tried to stop me from writing it. I have to respect their boundaries as well. 
And that's why, I don't know, I was very conscious about what I added and what I didn't. And once it was finished and actually getting printed, I think that's when it really became real for them. And whereas my brother has been like, write whatever the hell you want. I don't care. <laughs> like, this is your story and I stand by it. And they have been in, in their sort of, in their own ways, especially my sister has been that way too. But I can see why there's been some hesit- hesitancy because of what I could have added. And so they're just more so, I think, imagining the worst. But with my mom, she's the type where she just believes, you know, all this is private. And even the most, I think, surface layer information that I share is probably too much for her. Yeah, she doesn't want other people to read it. But, you know, hopefully with time, she will feel better and realize that I I try to tell her, look, this is why we're closer, because it's helped me let things go. But I have to respect how she feels about it because it's totally normal and makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's really beautiful the way you talk about like the intention you're coming from, which Sophia, you also reiterated upon this idea that like you can come through the memory from a feeling of anger. You can come through with an intention of inclusiveness, that it's your entire shared story and it's something that's bonded you forever whether people want it or not, it's still just the reality of the situation. And there's just a lot of beauty in the way you've you've talked about your process. And I have a lot of respect for the way you've handled this situation. And it doesn't surprise me knowing you as a person that you've handled this so gracefully. I think the precedent you're setting in terms of writing about something so personal and wanting to include other people's stories and fact check your memories is a really wonderful thing to hear. And I think adds to the value of the book and feeling good about reading it. And also, you know, what wanting like other writers feeling like other writers should be doing the same. And of course, I know everyone's process is very different, but it's really admirable. We'd love to have you read some excerpts if you're willing to do that. So if you have a few selected, we'd love to hear a little bit from your new book. I have a few excerpts, so I'll hop around in the book a little bit. The way Link collects, the mind does that. An archive of fragments, the replacing of a cap on a pen, the draw of the number eight, how to avoid the Yeti ownage of Ski Free 99, the jamming and removal of pennies from a CD drive. Bottom of palm to lids, the viewing of eye whites, the hologram projections in the corner of contested inertia, assumed hallucinations. Dad moved into his own apartment sometime before the rest of us left the basement. Around then, Mom walked into the house to find me sitting too close to the TV. I suppose Michael was watching me and Santa, and I suppose Dad was with Mom, her siblings, and Grandma. But I don't know, because I thought it was around the time it was around this time that I didn't see my father, that the curtains were drawn whenever he visited. This is where it gets messy. I remember him riding his bike with a bucket of Legos hanging off the handlebars, a kiss on the cheek through the fence of the yard before being called inside which was common while living a few blocks away from the refinery. Sometimes the air turned a thick yellow. It must have been later, maybe a single event, not circumstance, but I remember him explaining that he did come, that he walked from 16th to 21st Street on crutches and with cast to be told we weren't home. I remember being told to hide. 
There were nights when it was just us kids sharing a bed in dad's apartment, which for the most part, I can only picture overhead as a blueprint. My siblings would instruct me to run down the hall to the living room where dad was falling asleep on the recliner. I was to tell him I fell out of bed. We thought it would earn us somehow a stick of gum from his fridge. We were prepared to slice it in three. I'm so, so, so excited for people to read this book, for it to get out there even further. And for anyone listening who hasn't read Brandy's book, This I Can Tell You, published by Perennial Press in 2021. Um, So very new book um, and her very first. Definitely give it a listen. You showcase really raw and candid imagery in your writing. Is this something that comes natural to you, do you think? Or do you ever hesitate in your unfolding of memories? You've mentioned that a bit with the your book, but when it comes to previous writing that you've done before then in other shorter poetries, do you feel that that hesitation there? When I was writing the stuff leading up to my book, as well as my book, I was circling around a lot of sensory memories and a lot of a lot of those were the ones that were so hard to get out. I mean, once it came to writing it and actually trying to explain it, it almost came easy for certain ones, but just trying to find where they laid or where they lied in the book. For instance, I have one poem in the book that talks about link collecting, like the mind does that. And it talks about like an archive of fragments. Like these are a few lines from the poem. And That whole poem is essentially about growing up in my grandmother's basement. It was a finished basement, but laying in bed at night and like seeing all these like images on the ceiling and just, I didn't know the word, but as a child, I thought I was like hallucinating. It turns out my mom just had like hologram, like a projection going because I was a baby and something trying to get me to sleep. And, you know, a few little random memories I had in there, which I wouldn't be able to write about like in any other context besides poetry. Like for instance, I remember when my mom taught me how to draw the number eight, which is in that line, like in that poem, like those random memories at the time were easy to cluster together. Like it felt very natural. And at the time I was writing on a basis, I was reading on a basis, which I try to do now, but being in school, it was way more intense. And I feel like that helped to be in it that much. Whereas now I feel like trying to juggle work with life and and writing and art, like it's definitely a little bit harder because I'm not dedicating as many hours to it. But now that I go to write, I tend to write more about, I'm trying to write like essays that have like memories, but also tying it together to like some sort of either philosophical or some sort of bigger idea outside of the memory that it leads me to. Or, you know, I always, the purpose of all my writing is try to uncover something and it's very inward and I would like it to be a little bit more outward. But yeah, right now I've just been trying to write with what I know and then go in and edit. And that's how I kind of try to expand on it. Lately, it's definitely been harder, like I said, than when I was in school and it was all I was thinking about you know, especially the things that I was writing about, I was thinking about all the time, whereas now they're less heavy on my chest, if that makes sense. You briefly mentioned it in your answer, but uh, you do, your work is both written words, but also visual work. And I would love to talk a little bit about that as well. How, How do you relate to them and which one came first? How does your writing process differ from your visual process, for instance? 
the writing definitely it's I mean I've always loved art from a young age and I've always attempted it but never took any classes or anything so I've never felt confident in it it's always been something just for me and then with writing I've always felt drawn to it just from a young age also just because I hated math and to me writing was a lot easier so writing definitely comes first but now that I'm out of practice with writing a little bit and trying to get back into it it, I definitely feel like I'm battling like lately because I've been having trouble getting back into writing I've been trying to do some visual art and I do a lot of collages as of lately and I've done them throughout the years but haven't done them in a very long time in the past few years. So for me, it was, it's more of a hobby. It's more of something to try to, re- it's relaxing to me. And I try to go into it without many intentions or expectations, I should say. So I'll start with the art and then Erasure has been helping me a lot, just taking from old books, like individual words and trying to phrase them into something new because it, working with whatever's in front of me is easier than coming up with something on my own. So it's really just an exercise for me in a way to try to exercise my brain for writing a little bit more while making art. So it's kind of like how to do both at, at once in a way, even though it's a much smaller scale of writing. It's more meditative. Yeah. But I've noticed that you also do use writing in your visual work. Is that conscious? Yeah. I mean, I, I try to paint here and there and I'm still learning and there's a lot that I don't feel confident about with that. So when I do the collage work, it's the way to try to combine the writing and the art, but also I'm more confident in my writing. So it almost makes me more confident in the art. Part of that came from, I have a professor's advice ringing in my ear from college who, when I took a silk screen class, he told me, stop trying to draw. You're not good at it. Just print your poetry. And so part of me is like, you know, F you, I'm going to keep trying to draw. I'm trying to get better. But I'm also going to take his very true advice, which I think he meant for the course. You know, you don't have time to expand on that. You don't want to keep getting D's in this class, like just print your poetry. So I do have that ringing in my ear of like, I do have to kind of use what I have. And I just feel like it helps enrich the art a little bit more, hopefully. Yeah, I definitely feel that I think most creatives can relate to this, if not all, but this idea that I think naturally when we're feeling stuck, trying a new medium is always helpful. And it can be for this meditative purpose, or it can be to just let your brain just kind of let go of whatever it doesn't want to let go of, whatever stoppage is happening. But also just for for the sheer purpose of like freedom within creativity, like going through just one medium is I think very restrictive and it's very, very helpful for any craft, I think, to open it up to other things, whether we're good at it or not, it doesn't matter. It's just about being in a stage of exploration to unlock feeling like we can't explore. It's also nice to have that like beginner enthusiasm, you know, before you know what's really bad or good, or you're just exploring and having fun and you're doing it for you and not to to master something necessarily. Right. It's so freeing. Like we don't have to be an expert at everything. That's exhausting and impossible. And it's so limiting to like not do something because we're afraid we're not going to be good at it. Like we wouldn't do anything if we were like driven by that fear. So we wouldn't be podcasting right now. I want to end with a recurring question that we've brought into 
all of our upcoming episodes, which is what did you want to be when you were a kid? Meaning like, what did you want to be when you grew up? What did you answer to that question? And in addition to that, presently, as of now, who do you hope to be in the future? Like, who do you wish to become when you grow up, quote unquote? When I was younger, I always wanted to be a writer from probably around the time I learned how to read and write. But I also had the art bug in me that entire time. And I think that that was the thing that always made me most excited. So I would always envision owning, when I was really young, I would envision owning like a cafe slash bookstore slash a place where I could sell whatever I make that also has cats running freely through it. And just like the most random things that you can mash together. And I think partly is because I do jump from medium to medium a lot. Usually the same circle of them, but I just... Yeah, it's hard to focus on just one thing in that regard. But yeah, mostly just always wanted to be a writer and do some sort of art. And I just hope that in the future I can continue that because, you know, I want to be able to have some sort of job that has benefits that is also writing, even if it's not my own writing. And I'm trying to get into freelance in that way. So I'm hoping that one day I could just spend my time doing what I love. And I'm kind of trying to do that now. That's a very admirable and doable goal. You're definitely going to get there. Yeah, I'm literally a dog walker right now because I know that that's the only job that I can take that will get some sort of therapy out of it, like dopamine, you know, and also will leave me open to be able to come home and do other things, like instead of staring at a computer all day and then trying to write for myself. So I just hope that I can, you know, you want to make money, you want to be able to sustain yourself in a future life. And I'm honestly trying to take it day by day and be grateful for what I have accomplished so far. You published a book this year. That's huge. (laughs) That is huge. Well, I definitely see that for you in my crystal ball because I'm all powerful and clearly can see people's future. Make it happen, Jenny. (laughs) I'm no prophet, but I definitely, I think that's an amazing goal to have your full-time job, you know, incorporate what you love to do and are so, so naturally good at, and it's doable and people are doing it. And something like we really love to talk about in these talks is how much time that can take and how much patience and trust within yourself that can take and how that is not easy. Yet, I think with enough time, anything is doable. And, you know, as cheesy as that sounds, like with enough time, you may fail a bunch of times, not you personally, but all of us, right? Like we may fail to get to where we think we want to be. But if we dedicate enough time to it, and we don't give up, like, eventually, the odds are in our favor that things will get us to that place. So with that, thank you so much, Brandy. Thank you, Brandy, for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Ongoingness, a podcast that explores the underbelly of process and work. Enjoyed what you heard? Stand by for next week's episode. Want to check us out on social media? Find us on Instagram at ongoingnesspod. The music for this episode was produced by Erica Enriquez, recorded at Short Stack, New York. We'll see you next time.